bow our heads. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So, Lord, we look to you to work in our hearts, to produce results. Lord, we give ourselves to you, that your power work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. A few minutes ago, um, we had the reading from John chapter 1, words of John the Baptist and, and what followed. And I want to start with a question. I like questions. How many Muslims were there in the passage? How many Muslims were there in the passage? Now, if you like, you can look it up. It's John chapter 1, verse 29 through to 42. See, one of the things, one of the reasons that churches should have cross-cultural missionaries come and visit and speak is that they, um, they hopefully bring other points of view that you don't, normally don't hear, other views of things, other aspects. And one thing that happens when you um, travel into another culture, and especially if you learn your way in and learn to, to think and perceive differently, is you relearn familiar truths in a new way. And the gospel is so rich. There is so much there uh, that no matter which perspective you come in from, there is more to find. So it's good to have uh, oddballs like me who turn up and ask silly questions. Let me, let me give a, a little example. Uh, John the Baptist said, Behold, the, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when I was working on the translation of that passage, um, I was talking to uh, a young man who was raised among nomads, an ethnic Arab, and he said, I don't understand. And we talked about what the meaning was supposed to be. And he said, but you've got the word there for a baby sheep. I said, yes, that's right. And he says, but who would sacrifice a baby sheep? You don't sacrifice a sheep unless it's a year old. And I was all set to correct him. And I thought, actually, if you go back through the Old Testament... Whenever they give details of the sort of lamb or sheep to sacrifice, it always says it should be a year old. And I've always read it as some little woolly, knock-kneed lamb, you know, shorn the sheep or something. That's not the picture. That's not... The guy could see it straight away. I couldn't. And, it was a, and for the nomads, it was a different word. Different word for the baby suckling lamb to the young, yearling, just mature, strong. So anyway... Examples of things you learn uh, by relating to people in other cultures. And if anybody, while I was telling that story, had this little tug in their heart that thought, wow, how cool it would be to sit in a nomad camp under the stars talking about the gospel. Don't lose that thought. Anyway, my question. How many Muslims were there in the passage? And there are at least three ways of answering it. The standard evangelical answer is zero. Silly question. Sorry, I shouldn't have asked. Zero. Because Islam started 600 years later, how could there be any in it? Well, this is a Christian document, it's in scripture, it's... You know. well, we understand that answer, that's easy. If we were going to answer it from the point of view of Islamic theology, there are two possible answers that could be given. 
One answer would be two. And that's probably the answer you'd most likely get if you involved a Muslim in a discussion of it. Because Jesus and John are both regarded as prophets by Muslims, and all the prophets, by definition, are considered Muslims. And Jesus and John are both in the passage, so that's two. A deeper Islamic theological response would be, actually, every human being that he's ever born is a Muslim. His purpose for living is to trust, serve, and obey God. The fact that they don't know it and don't do it doesn't change the facts. That's another point of view. So actually there's five people mentioned. Jesus, John, Andrew, the unnamed disciple, and then Simon Peter. Five. It's interesting that the, the technical meaning, the, the theological meaning of the word Muslim is actually one who lives in submission. And actually the word submission tends to wind us up a bit as Westerners. It means to put it in slightly different words. Somebody who lives in obedient trust before God, consciously obeying and trusting God. And actually, that's not so very far from what the Bible calls people to be. The practical definition, the default definition in real life, tends to be a Muslim is somebody who belongs to the religion of Islam and who confesses Muhammad. Whether they like it or not, whether they chose it or not, whether they practice it or not, it's just a, a social identity. That's out there. But as I say, all Muslims know and regard Jesus as being one of their prophets. Because all the prophets, by definition, live in submission to God. They are sent by God. They are part of Islam. And it's interesting because the evangelical response, and some of you are already feeling it, you're already getting itchy, say, no, that's wrong! That's wrong! Don't say that! And there is something about evangelical Christians that just longs to show how people are wrong. Back in the 90s sometime, I was part of a team at Spring Harvest, and they set up this event where people were taken on a sort of uh, little tour to have, have some cross-cultural experiences, and there were several stages, you went through this maze, and the final stage is they were brought before me, and I was dressed in uh, sort of Arab gear, sitting cross-legged with an Arabic Bible that they thought was the Quran, and they would be herded in in, the, in groups and invited to dialogue with me. And I spoke in English, but, and I was a little bit more assertive, because we didn't have very long, just to keep things going. And, and group after group of these nice Christian people who had chosen to go and spend their holiday getting Bible teaching and worshipping together... You know, these are, these are serious Christians. They're, you know, motivated people. And they were brought in, and, and time after time, there were hundreds of them that were brought through, time after time, they pitched in and argued with me and tried to show me I was wrong and got cross with me and got angry with me. And I was only playing the role, you know. They were so easy to wind up. And straight away, they would want to find a point of confrontation, and, you know, I knew what they were going to say, because it's all familiar territory, and I would answer them back, and some would just clam up after that, well, if you don't take it, that's your problem, you know. And others got more cross. They wanted to beat me, rather than win me. And, to be fair, 
They were taken by surprise. They hadn't prepared. Hardly anybody there had ever seriously thought about how they'd talk to an informed Muslim. Which these days is shocking, isn't it? I mean, there's so many around, you should be ready. Anyway, that was a few years ago. We're not like that. And um, I remember there was one woman, one woman, uh, uh, an Afro-Caribbean woman from Walthamstow, who stood out from the rest who, I I haven't got time to tell the story, but she was brilliant, didn't take the bait, spoke graciously, drew out the question, said things that that drew the heart of somebody who was serious about God. It was great. One out of I don't know how many hundreds that passed through, and if you were one of them, I'll see you later. We'll, We'll make friends again. Occasionally I meet people that were in that spring harvest. Anyway, so often our instinct is to get into argument and to, to, to defeat the person in argument. That's what we want to do. And somebody claims Jesus as their prophet. We want to haul him back. He's ours. He's not yours. Actually, he's not ours. We're his. And the, the, the positive thing is this. If Jesus is a Muslim, then it is totally legitimate to talk about Jesus with Muslims. Because it's their territory. And instead of saying, I'm taking him away and leaving you nothing, you say, you've got something, but I want to give you more. Because there's more you don't know. And so you start with personal testimony. You you add things they don't know. Because they don't know very much. And Jesus is attractive. Jesus is by far the most attractive thing about Christianity. He's more attractive than us, isn't he? Let's face it. Um, Jesus is attractive. People need exposing to who Jesus is. And many Muslims are very open. Not all. But many are very open to talking about Jesus and understanding him better if we ourselves come across with credibility. How many Muslims might you meet this year? Every year the potential for meeting them increases. Are we ready? Now, in our passage, John the Baptist said in verse 34, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. And of course, the Son of God, that phrase is that one of the biggest points of contention between Christians and Muslims. And if you get to know a Muslim, if you get talking about religious things, the chances are this will come up. Um, Why? Because they have been told, and they are told, Christians say Jesus is the Son of God. And that means that God took a woman and had a child by her. And this shows that Christians are totally muddle-headed. They don't understand God. They don't understand morality. They don't understand theology. They're all mixed up. You can't trust them, even if they seem nice. So the question comes up. And it may come from somebody who's hostile and wants an argument. It may come from somebody who's totally puzzled. How can you believe such wacky stuff? And it may come from somebody who's a seeker and actually is really drawn to what he sees in Christians, but, or she sees in Christians, but doesn't know how to get around this one because it just seems such a nonsense. And there are ways of answering. One of the ways that I really like to answer this question, or this matter, however it comes up, is to say, you know, Jesus has many, many titles. And every one of them is, is rich and full and is a blessing. Did you know that Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Open the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is called the Lamb of God, but it doesn't mean he's all woolly. It doesn't mean literally that he's a sheep. 
Did you know he was called the Lamb of God? No, never heard of that one. Well, let me explain. Jesus came to be a sacrifice. Look, John says, the, the prophet John says, uh, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember Abraham? They all know about Abraham. And how he was going to sacrifice his son. They celebrate this every year. How he was going to sacrifice his son. And what did God do? God gave him a sheep. Yes, and the sheep took the place of the son, didn't he? Yes, common ground. The son of Abraham, don't worry about the name, the son of Abraham could not help himself. He was powerless. And we all, human beings, whether we have religion or not, we are all helpless when it comes to the wrong things we do. We cannot live perfect lives. And as we see in this passage, Jesus came to do two things. First of all, to be the sacrifice that pays for the wrongdoing we've done. And secondly, if we want to live in obedient trust with God and, and really live good lives that please God, we need a power that we don't have in ourselves. And it says here, he is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And you don't understand those words, but I'd like to explain more. Now, he is the one that comes to give the gift of God's Spirit so that we live differently. And any serious seeker after God is interested in having his sins dealt with and receiving power to live differently. And we haven't yet got back to the question of what Son of God means. But we've got on to stuff that's useful and interesting and important. And when he really wants to know, when she really wants to know, then you get background to, well, let's have a look at what Son of God really means. Um, the Muslim name for John the Baptist is Yahya. And for Muslims who come from places where they don't pronounce the H, some parts of Africa, some parts of London, um, Yahya or Yahya uh, is the name for John. Please, please, if you ever meet anyone called Yahya or Yahya, it's a boy's name, but girls always have as their surname a male name, a father's name. If you meet Fatima Yahya, if you meet Ashta Yahya, or Ashta, mother of Yahya, or brother of Yahya, so you, if anybody has got a Yahya in their name, say, oh, what a wonderful name. You're named after one of God's prophets, aren't you? Or your son, or your father, whatever, named after one of God's prophets. We love to read them about, about him in our book. They haven't got a clue about Yahya, except that he's a prophet. Can I show you? Well, if they say no, they say no. You tried, it didn't hurt. If they say, oh, I'd like to see that, Birth of John the Baptist in, um, in Luke chapter 1. God spoke through his father, Zachariah. They call him Yahya, son of Zachariah. Zachariah, familiar territory. And it's, it's a great passage, you know, there's nothing offensive or scary there. And then you go, this is what he did. Luke chapter 3, baptizing people, telling them to turn away from wickedness. Well, that's good. John chapter 1, he introduces Jesus. I mean, it's, it's a gift. Somebody's... Name's, someone's got Yaya in their name, don't miss the opportunity to say, oh, I know what that means. I know who that is. I'm interested in that person. Do you know the details? Look, make, create the opportunity, just from the name. Anyway, I said that there were three ways of answering the question, at least three ways, of answering the question, how many Muslims were in the passage? And I've given you the evangelical answer and the possible Islamic answer. Now, if I may be so bold, I want to give God's answer. God's answer is all of them. 
Behold, sorry, I prefer it with behold. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world includes everyone. And it's obvious, and yet we miss it every time. Everyone, all the Muslims, all the Hindus, all the Buddhists, all the atheists, all the don't knows, all the mixed up, all the new age, all the, all the Christians. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world really means everybody. And we're so adept to say, oh, that's, that's for me. Or me and you, if there's two, you know. There is a breadth to that statement. There is an awesome um, largesse to that statement of the world. Uh, One of my privileges and joys in doing New Testament translation was to work on the book of Revelation. And so many of us go around scared of the book of Revelation because there's bits we don't understand. I've had to get to grips with it and uh, I'm quite comfortable with it now. It's a great book. Um, and uh, one of the things in Revelation is all the, practically all the numbers and all the quantities have symbolic value as well as perhaps literal value. And the number four and quantities of four talk about or represent the whole earth, like the four points of the compass and the four winds. And the f- four is about all of creation, all of the earth. And we, we have this, this statement in uh, chapter 5. Addressed to the Lamb, talk about the Lamb of God, the Lamb, you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Did you catch the four? From every tribe. Well, that's everybody in the world. Finish. End of. You purchased men for God from every tribe. That actually covers it. But then you get, and every language. Well, that's everybody. And people. Well, every people. That's everybody. And nation. Four times it says exactly the same thing using different words. To underline and underscore absolutely every kind of person there is. The Lamb of God is for every kind of person. And that that global dimension is something that should shape our thinking. He's not just our personal blessing. He is the Lamb of God for the world. Practically, it means this. There is no kind of person you can ever meet that is not amongst those Christ died for. Now, if if you're you're a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist, you say, oh, Christ died for the elect. Well, you don't know who the elect are, and every kind of person is included. The elect is in every kind of person, so it comes to the same thing. Every person you stand next to at the bus stop, everybody you see on the telly, everybody who comes into your classroom, everybody who lives on your street. And before we start running around with, oh, I feel guilty because I haven't done this or that, We need to let our mind be filled with this truth and to ask God to help us to refocus our eyes so that we see people through this lens that God has sent his son to die as a a sacrifice for all these people that are around us. It is the demonstration of his love. It is the demonstration of his intent. Everyone we meet 
has had the love of God shown to them in Christ, whether they know it yet or not. And therefore, it is right and appropriate that we also show love to them. And that whole message of loving your neighbour is not just some nice platitude. It's rooted in who Christ is and what he's done. And it relates to everybody that we meet. And humanly, we screen things down. May God enlarge our heart and our eyes that we see differently. The Lamb of God. That's a very definitive term, isn't it? A very exclusive term. John didn't say, here is a Lamb of God that you might consider. Here is a special offer. Take one of these. Jesus, blah, 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 blah. One of many. He did not say, here is, here is some private deal. This is the Lamb of God for everybody. He didn't say, in my opinion, and I think I'm right, this is the one. It's actually very, assertive is the wrong word, it's very definitive. In a world at that time where there were many religions and, and, and Buddhism was already spreading out of India and there are all kinds of different cults around the Roman Empire and there are all kinds of things going on, this is the Lamb of God. Not somebody's opinion, but God's provision for every kind of person there is. Following his declaration, oh no, I want to say this. Jesus Christ is not your personal saviour. Before they throw me out, Jesus Christ is a global saviour who requires a personal response. Do you get the difference? Jesus Christ is not your personal saviour, not your property, not your individual thing. He is a global saviour and he demands, he requires a personal response. That's very different. The implications are much different. Anyway, after John's declaration, uh, it goes on to, do, to say how two of his followers then set off to follow Jesus and how Andrew talked to Peter. And it's God's method. One person speaks to another. Or two people speak to more people. That same method still holds. God still gives his blessings, his life, his truth to individuals for them to pass on through word and deed to others. It's true here. It's true in Norwich. I know to varying degrees um, you are doing that or else struggling because you're not doing it. Um, We know that that is what we should do. And wherever you're at on that level, God wants to help you do more, do better, do it together. But... I, it would be, what's the word, I, it would be irresponsible of me at this point not to mention again that there are places on the earth where there are no individuals who can say, I have heard this truth, that I know Jesus is the Lamb of God. There are still places where there are no witnesses, there is no one who is carrying this truth and speaking it out. The age of gospel missions did not die with Queen Victoria. Uh, Every generation, uh, in every generation, mission looks different and it has to change because the world is changing. But it's still going on. God is still calling people not only to go to their neighbour, but to go to people far away. If you feel the nudge at whatever strange time of day or night from God saying, actually, I want you to go way beyond your comfort zone to another place, whether for a season or for life, Don't suppress it. God uses ordinary people and often people that, you know, others wouldn't have chosen. 
God has a, a funny way of choosing people. And if you sense that God is calling you, don't suppress it. If your son or daughter comes to you and says, you know, I really think God wants me to go off and be a missionary somewhere, don't suppress it. They might need good advice, but don't you bury it. Mummy, I think God wants me to go to Afghanistan. Well, you might want to pray a bit, don't suppress it. Actually, it won't work unless God is in it. Dad, I think I should go to Somalia. Somalia? Now, Somalia's living in Birmingham. What's a good place to start? Maybe Chad. It's another wacky place. If your parents say to you, you know, I'm going to take early retirement and I'm going to clear off to some strange place, don't try and stop them. We have a Dutch couple out in Chad at the moment retired teachers, and the biggest struggle for them is that their kids, their adult kids, didn't want them to go, no, we need you here, we need you here. If the cat fits, wear it. Jesus Christ has many, many titles. They are rich, and they are full, and they're worth sharing. They're all important. We are here on this earth to make him known by our deeds and by our words. May the Lord give us the grace and uh, the strength to do it. In Jesus' name. Amen.